From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The American experiment undergoes a lot of tests. We're in the middle of one right now, a tense debate about how to conduct elections and what it means to be a responsible citizen. The former president of the United States, the one who directed his followers to attack the Capitol on January 6, 2021, has made his baseless claims about voter fraud a loyalty test, and an alarming number of top Republicans have fallen in line. The current president and majorities in Congress support voting legislation that guarantees rights and guards against discrimination. But those bills keep getting blocked by a minority through the use of the Senate filibuster. Yale history professor Timothy Snyder, the author of several books, most notably on tyranny, 20 lessons from the 20th century, is one of the more insightful observers of our politics, and he joins us on political theater today to discuss the state of the United States as a representative democracy. Professor Snyder, welcome. Glad to be with you. Thank you. We hadn't planned it exactly when we had reached out to you that we would be quite literally in the middle of a week where the president would go down to Atlanta to talk about voting rights, that the Senate would be uh, looking at changing their rules possibly to consider voting legislation, and it would be the topic. Uh, But sometimes things work out in our favor, and I'm so happy to have uh, your insight into this. When you look at you know, sort of the bigger picture, where we're at right now, more than a year after the 2020 election, more than a year after the January 6th attacks, and less than a year before the midterms, how significant do you see this debate over voting rights legislation, regardless of what the the outcome may be uh, in the coming months? Well, I I think it's existential. I think the, the fate of the republic itself hangs on it. We tend to talk about the decline of democracy or the possible collapse of democracy, but I don't think there's really a meaningful distinction between the collapse of democracy and the collapse of the republic itself, that is the collapse of the United States itself. So I go back to, to, to Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address and the idea of government of, by, and for the people. We, we have a problem, which is that government can't really be for the people unless it's of the people and by the people. We, we have an electoral system now, which is very easy to game. And one of the two political parties has made gaming the system essentially its only issue. So rather than having to solicit um, the support and the votes of the American people, we have a major political party, which is kind of twisted around the worst aspects of the system itself. And that's, that's a problem for a democracy, because if a democracy doesn't deliver then people begin to think, why democracy? Why not just have a quote unquote strong leader? And then the, the immediate scenario, I mean, what I've said right there is just perfectly generic, but the immediate scenario in the US is that if we don't have some kind of, of voting reform, for example, of the kind that's being discussed right now in the Senate, then it seems like the, the default scenario is Republicans take both chambers in this November. And, and then in the next election, then there's a very good chance that Mr. Trump will be the candidate and that he and somebody or someone else on the Republican side will lose by dozens of electoral votes and let's say you know 10 million popular votes, but nevertheless will be in a position to be legally installed as president of the United States, thanks to a combination of voter suppression, voter subversion, 
running out the clock with audits um, and, and getting the whole thing into the House of Representatives. So there's a general problem, and there's a particular American instantiation of that problem, which is, which I think is very likely. So I, I, I'm thinking now in terms of you know, the existence of the United States, because if we do get an installed president in 2025, I, I don't think that, I, I just, I don't think the system itself will be able to handle that. I don't think that people will be able to handle that. I don't think people, you know, will, will, will I think the, the clash then or the tension then between our system on paper with its ever deepening flaws and the desire of people to elect their own president, I think that tension at some point becomes too great and spills over into something which is beyond politics. Yeah, and I feel like we have seen this almost it's almost a built in minority rule in some ways uh, in the political system that's been really picking up steam uh, the last few decades. I, I, you know, sort of recall that in the last 34 years, only two Republican nominees for president have won the popular vote. And, you know, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, who did not win the popular vote, he did win the Electoral College vote in 2016, but he didn't win the popular vote. He still installed three Supreme Court justices uh, in, in, you know, one third of the Supreme Court. And then you get to things like the filibuster, which is an integral part of this voting rights, you know, debate. And, you know, even like sort of people who consider themselves, you know, pretty smart about this say like, well, this is an integral part of the character of the Senate, which is nonsense because it's nowhere in the Constitution. Uh, it And it already slants an advantage towards, you know, smaller states to put them, put it almost on steroids. The great compromise was just that there was a second chamber that was represented by two people regardless um, of, of the size, not that there would be a supermajority requirement for all legislation. But we, it seems like these things are being taken for granted, not just in among people who have a vested interest in in clogging things up, but in with the public too. Is that how do we get through that as as journalists, even when we have to almost explain civics, basic civics, before we get to the news? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think journalists face a kind of dilemma because journalists, on the one hand, want to say if we all just follow the Constitution, everything would be honky dory, but on the other hand, the Constitution. Even if, as you quite rightly say, it doesn't provide for things like the filibuster, it also doesn't prevent things like the filibuster. And it does build in a lot of unrepresentativeness into the system. I mean, I can only agree with the premise of your question. It's it's unusual by 20th or 21st century standards to have an upper house, which is more important than a lower house. It's unusual to have an important house of your parliament, which is so deeply unrepresentative. And then to, to add to those two unusual features, the truly unique feature of allowing, you know, basically any representative to stop legislation by way of the filibuster. To find a parallel to something like that, you have to go all the way back to the old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and its idea, which actually was gotten rid of in the 18th century, that any person had the right to veto legislation by, by a single vote. I mean, that's, that's how archaic it is or how far one has to stretch to find something that would seem to be similar to our system in the United States. I mean, I'm an American and I'm a historian, but I'm not an American historian. When I look at things like the Philip Buster, just from the, the normal everyday comparative point of view of somebody who has lived in other democracies, I just find it puzzling. If we were like building a democracy from scratch and someone around the table, you know, raised his hand and said, why don't we add in this feature where if somebody just pro promises to talk for a long time, you know, legislation will be stopped. I think everybody around the table would just kind of look at them quizzically and say, well, what, what does that have to do with democracy? You know, and, and let's let's give it a funny name, you know, let's call it the filibuster. I mean, 
if, if we were starting from zero, you would never build that in. Certainly not if you were thinking about, about democracy. And so this gets me back to you know, the, the point I was making in the last question, which is that if we take these features, constitutional, extra constitutional, and use them to keep pushing away from democracy, right? If we keep following this kind of back to the future scenario where we go back to the 18th century, look for the worst of the 18th century, push the 18th century logic as far as it can go, then things are going to break. Because we are we are in the 21st century, and we are in a country where most people think they live in a democracy and would like to live in a democracy and like to imagine that there's some translation between how they vote and what actually happens. Yeah. And I, you know, the, you actually answered the, one of the next questions was whether there were any parallels that other representative democracies had to things like the filibuster. I, I, they, I always came up with a blank and not knowing about the Polish Lithuanian Congress of the 18th century. I, uh, that that had slipped, um, but I I, <laughs> I also well you, I mean you should but you should I mean if I could just add like this was a feature of the Polish system which in the 18th century which was known to be a problem at the time right so when we're looking at something which three centuries ago um, you know there were already lots of headlines in British newspapers which were like trouble again in the Polish Parliament. Right, because it was understood that this was not really the way to do things. And to be fair, when the poll, when when the polls actually wrote their constitution, which was the first written constitution, um, it, it it they they got rid of this and they established much more normal voting procedures. And everything would have been fine if not for the fact that Russia then partitioned the country out of existence, which is another story. So, I mean, in the 18th century, it was understood that this thing we're talking about was really not the way forward. And, you know, there are so many, you know, facets of like the voting rights legislation, whether it's vote by mail or early voting that are very popular, that have been stymied. There are other things that the Congress considers uh, that that are passed and then die in, in the Senate. You know, the, the one of the things that comes to mind is an independent commission to investigate January 6th. This passed, you know, with bipartisan support in the House. 54 senators voted for it uh, in the Senate, and yet that wasn't good enough. Uh, and also a couple of Democrats were absent that day, so it would have even been higher, higher, like with, with their attendance. How in in your study of other, you know, democracies that have failed, uh, that have fallen into disrepair or fallen into tyranny, how long do they usually have of of the majority? sentiment being stymied for so long before the system just breaks? Yeah, that's a great question. Can I just say, before I try to answer, can I just say something about something that's invited by your question? It's, it has, it's about the relationship between history and democracy. So d democracy is about reflection. You know, democracy involves the recognition that we, the voters, make mistakes, our elected officials make mistakes, and then we, we vote again and we try to clean it up. You know, we, we, it's, it's, it, nobody's perfect. You know, you get another shot. You can throw the bums out. That's the spirit of democracy. And that's also the spirit of history. I mean, history is the thing which allows us to, to realize, oh, well, we made a mistake there. We made another mistake there. We made another, made another mistake there. And so I, I think democracy and history have this natural working relationship. And, th and that's one of the reasons why it's so crucial that events like January 6th be properly investigated and that, you know, that investigation be as broad as possible. And I mean, that's why it, for me, it's a sadness for the American people now and generations forward that, that, that this wasn't approved by the Senate. You know, like the January 6th commission that exists is doing good work. And I'd like to think it's going to make a difference. But if you want to be a democracy, 
one of the things you have to do is to allow this kind of reflection, you know, and the idea that this reflection was blocked precisely by a minority is, is, is just, is doubly depressing. So to get to your question, so the classic parallel there would be um, democracies, which were created after 1918. That was, um, you know, the, uh, there was a big, a big wave of creation of democratic republics after 1918. And they had various kinds of problem with problems with their parliamentary design. Um, not the same as ours, but, you know, you could put them roughly in the same basket, design features that were problematic and which, which led to the reality and the perception that, you know, these places, the parliament was just which just was just a place where people went and came came and talked. You know, it was just a it was just a, a, a corrupt discussion club. Nothing ever really happened there. You know, the kinds of things which are not so different, unfortunately, from what you'll find if you take a poll of Americans about our our Congress. And that you know, in that scenario, the, those 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 systems with those design flaws lasted from um, let's say eight to fifteen years before they before they fell apart. So I mean if, if you so if one thinks that we're getting to that point and I personally think that we are, then that gives you a rough idea. And you know, getting back to some of the kind of uh, the, the way that the, the criticism of like majority rule it almost seems and and what sort of you know Democrats are trying to do with the January 6 committees and so forth, I see some of the same language used um, you know with, there were a couple of Republicans who were uh, asked to to testify uh, or to talk to the committee uh, about their contact with uh, the former president and his allies uh, in the days leading up to January 6th. Scott Perry, a Republican from, from Pennsylvania, and Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio. And they used the same language that that, that Donald Trump has used, they're calling it a partisan witch hunt. And I, I was thinking about that in relation to your book on tyranny, that one of the um, one of the things that you mentioned about like the how people approach the truth uh, or or manipulating it is the use of shamanistic incantations, uh, which is a great turn of phrase. Uh, but this is lock her up and lion Ted and crooked Hillary and and uh, you know partisan witch hunt and that and, and it just seems like that the use of that nullifies the any, any kind of intelligent discourse for for people. It just sort of cuts it off at the nub and. I, I, we've also sort of seen the the new version of this writ large is let's go Brandon, you know, this like weird uh, sort of trolling of President Biden uh, from a mix up at a NASCAR race where somebody said, oh, it sounds like they're saying let's go Brandon when they were saying, you know, F you Biden. And I wonder like, if is this, is this, is this also, I mean, do you, is this just where we're at now, now? I mean, like, because it seems like the the debate, so much of the debate devolves into this, oh, this is a partisan witch hunt so quickly. How do we get past that? How do we get past the the use of of you know people sort of throwing that in journalist's face or or anybody who is trying to just get at the truth? I don't I don't have any quick fixes. I have a I have a couple long-term answers. One is one is the rehabilitation of factuality, which you know I think folks on the left have some thinking to do there because if 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 you if you make the move as as a lot of people did in this country in the seventies and eighties that it, politics is you know politics is personal or maybe maybe all politics is all personal then then you're kind of inviting the people who are meaner than you and better funded than you to 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 to, to turn that around on you and you know and show you just what it means to say it's all personal right so. Jim, Jim Jordan, I mean, it's hard to think of a, a bigger, softer target than Jim Jordan. I mean, in, in the world of reality, there are all kinds of 
there are all kinds of attendant facts circling around, you know, Mr. Jordan. Um, and I say that as, as not just as an American, but as, as an Ohioan. Um, there, there are a lot of interesting things to know about Mr. Jordan. But in a world where politics is just personal, then it's his right to say it's a partisan witch hunt. It's, a, it's his right to say whatever, you know, and then we have to treat that opinion as being just as valid as other opinions. So part of it is that, you know, we need to have a kind of consensus reconstruction of factuality as the basis of, of, of political discourse. And then another long-term thing is actually the subject of your program today, which is um, electoral reform. So, th so this is, I mean, this is, this is not an argument which anybody's going to be very sympathetic to, but I think it's true. I think Republicans really need it. Like sometimes you resist the stuff that you really need, but I think they, I mean, I think in a certain profound moral sense, they really need to have electoral reform because what's, what's happened is that they become a party which survives thanks to the flaws in the system and thanks to their ability, you know, to, 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 to withdraw precisely into you know, it's nice that you mentioned the shamanistic incantation, you know, to re retire precisely into button pushing. And they can do that because they're so unrepresentative, right? They can do that because they don't really have to talk to American voters very much anymore. They only have to talk to a certain set of people who they themselves get to define, right? It's like you're walking into a party and you see your buddies, you know, and you go talk to your buddies and that's all you have to do. You know, that's how that's what politics is for them at this point. And this is unhealthy for them because it's driving them into this spiral where they're more and more wedded to the flaw, not just the system, but the flaws in the system. And it's and, and so just structurally speaking, I mean, we can talk about the ones we dislike more than the other ones. But structurally speaking, they're being driven down into the scenario where really all they can do at some point is just seize power undemocratically. Right. And so in a weird way. Um, in a weird way, this is this is their last this is their last chance too. Like this is I know they're all going to vote against it, but like it's their last chance too. Another way to think about this is if you don't if you never so you're supposed to pass legislation, right? Like that's what a parliament is for, right? That's what a Congress is for. You're supposed to pass legislation, and when the Republicans do politics the way they do, where it's all about no all the time. They're turning it into just a matter of competitive emotion, you know. So I say partisan witch hunt, and that pushes a bunch of buttons, you know. And you say something else, and that pushes a bunch of buttons, and then you know, election just becomes a question of how, who pushes buttons better, and that's the kind of party that you then become because because what you're supposed to be competing on is laws. You're supposed to be saying, okay, we we're gonna when we get elected. We're going to pass these laws and then and then, you know, maybe we'll lose next time and you guys can undo our laws. But for the time being, we're going to compete with you on these laws. What the Republicans have succeeded in doing to themselves and to the Democrats, you know, is to say, no, we're not going to pass any laws at all. Really, we're going to just we're just going to do the button pushing. We're just going to do the incantation. Um, and so th this this then becomes a deep argument for voting reform precisely, because if you have a more representative Congress, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans have the majorities, then they have then they're going to be more likely to pass laws and compete on laws rather than hugging hugging close to this very you know this unfortunate collection of of flaws in the system that we have. You know, it's weird. There have been these strange little um, kind of green shoots, I'll call them. Uh, you know, the, uh, in the last week, John Thune, who's this number two uh, Republican in the Senate, the uh, from he's a Republican from South Dakota, and Mitch McConnell have both 
sort of said that they would be open to clarifying the Electoral College Count Act. Uh, so to, to, you know, sort of, it, it's not, it's certainly not what, uh, it's not reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act parts that have been struck down by the Supreme Court. But I wonder if they're, if, if they feel a little, a bit of pressure about like, oh, this is something that, that does need to eventually be, you know, addressed. And then uh, in in South Dakota, um, Thune's one of his colleagues, Mike Rounds, a former governor who's uh, now in the Senate, uh, was, you know, asked about the 2020 election and the former president's, you know, claims. And and he says, like, you know, there was no fraud. Trump lost <laughs> and Trump just attacked him. And then he came back and said, like, listen, I'm, I stand by what I say. And I, I wonder if like some of those, if for lack of a better term, more establishment Republicans feel some heat knowing that. We can't just be about insulting people. I, I think uh, you could be right. I mean, you follow these things, no doubt, more closely than I. I've got a slightly different analysis, which is that I think back in, if we think back to November, December of 20, when, you know, the, the, what McConnell did was he just said, you know, let, he just kind of humored Trump until the, until the last moment, and then he accepted the result. I, I think, you know, I think the reason why they did that then was that they were thinking short term, the idea that there was something wrong with this election could be an issue for us, like we can maybe run with that short term. And of course, in a, in a very narrow, and in my view, you know, anti-democratic and anti-patriotic way, they're right, like, the idea that your vote isn't counted and other people's votes are counted twice or whatever the claim is, that does get people riled up, right? And it has gotten people riled up. And now the Republican Party has basically become a one-issue party. And the one issue is that they cheat and therefore we have to cheat to stop them from cheating. You know, that's like, that's it. That's what they've got. I think, I mean, my my supposition from a great distance is that now that they're out of the short term and into the medium term, they might be thinking, if we're stuck on this one issue forever, we, we're not going to be senators in anything which looks like a republic in the future, right? Like if this is our one issue, then we're going to end up our careers maybe as something called senators, but it's not clear that it's going to be in a republic and it's not clear it's going to be the United States. I think that's dawning on them. And I think so. I think like how much risk they're willing to take with the U.S. is probably much greater than how much I would take or you would take. But I think for some of them, there is a limit. Right. I think they I think they're beginning to realize that if the party is just about how we're going to lie about how the Democrats cheated and then cheat more ourselves, if it's just about that, then you, you're going to end up with so much turmoil that, um, you know, that the various things that maybe you do care about your own reputation, the future of your families, the existence of the United States, they are putting those things into, into a kind of hazard. So that's my guess. I could be entirely wrong, though. I, I don't mean to hit on January 6th over and over again, but it is it does seem to be this sort of singular event in our in our history. Um, and I mean, you know, the I, I don't I don't think it goes I don't think the parallel to something like the Reichstag fire is is necessarily um, I, I don't I don't see a straight line between the two. But like, do you from a from an historian's viewpoint, like, you know, let's say we're, we're decades removed from this event and this time, is this, is that event going to still stick out, uh, in, in the broader, you know, history and study of, of the Republic and what happened to the United States in the, in this time? Um, 
if the U.S. fails, it will, <laughs> uh, for sure, in whatever entities you know are, are then left over. If the U.S. still exists, I think it also will, because the U.S. is only going to exist insofar as we draw some conclusions from that. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who I listened to a couple of times because I was on the same program as she in the last couple of weeks, it has a has a slightly more upbeat and optimistic take on this, and she refers to January sixth and the investigation thereof as a kind of, I think she used the phrase ignition point. You know that maybe this will be something which allows us to gather and you know around some kind of warmth that unifies us, et cetera. And that that may be, but I think in either scenario, whether we get brought down by it or whether we get over it, it's going to end up being something very important in terms of how we think about about it. Um, I mean, I've talked about the Reichstag fire enough for the last four years. I don't talk about it in every, you know, in every program. I can use a different analogy. And the analogy that I would use is the beer hall putsch. I mean, for right now, like the the Hitler's first attempt to gain power. I think this is kind of more like that. Like it it wasn't very well coordinated. It was it was clearly an attempt to take power by non democratic means, and it involved storming a building, but it wasn't that well coordinated, and it wasn't going to work. And the police were on the other side. Right for the most part, anyway, the police were on were on the other side, and then what grows out of the beer hall putsch is 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 this legend of victimhood, right? And that you know, so our martyrs, um, and I think you know, although there are no martyrs on, there's all, okay, maybe there's one, but there's there's the, the the idea is like we 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 tried to do this heroic thing and we failed. You know, and that and that and that's what you remember, right? It becomes this like we were we were in the right, you know, we we were trying to do the right thing, and now we have this heroic memory. That's what it's more like for me. Like it's this kind of it's the same kind of victim flipping. You know, you're trying to carry a coup d'état to to you know, if you're Trump, like you're a billionaire who's just you're a billionaire who's or at least you claim to be a billionaire, and you're in, you're the, you're the president of the United States, but and then you try to overturn the system, but nevertheless, the the story of January sixth somehow makes you a victim, right? They were trying to take it away from you, and therefore our violence was justified. That's how the story works. Like it creates, a, it creates this kind of cult. It creates this kind of alternative reality, and that happened in Germany, and that's happening. That's happening with us too. I mean, not with everybody, but with a with a considerable minority of Americans. There's this idea that January sixth was a kind of righteous action, and that, and maybe most importantly, that Trump is the victim. Right? That we are the victims. And the idea that you're the victim um, is a very powerful idea because it means that. You know, if you're the victim and you're actually the one who has power, but you're convinced that you have that you're the victim, that leads to, you know, that leads to the ability to do really drastic things. Maybe one last question, you know, that sort of wraps some of this around is, is that, I mean, the, you know, you can find different polls that state where people's priorities are and what, what they're concerned about um, and, and so forth. But and and voting rights doesn't seem to come up is, is, is apathy also where we lose uh, because I mean, if 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 you just think that if there's a significant number of people who don't see that there that there is a that we are being tested and this is a threat, you know, to to be to be in a system that where it is so easy to game it or it's so vulnerable, um, and not and not to try to guarantee people's rights to vote and guarantee people's rights to be heard, is there is apathy a problem? I mean, in in the past and here, I mean, because it's it's hard to imagine apathy being a problem after we've seen so many people, you know, sort of rise up, whether it was in social justice protests over over, you know, in in twenty twenty or over the pandemic. But is is are people just 
apathetic? And is that a problem uh, as, as we head into something that as consequential as this election? Yeah. I mean, let me kind of take a stab at trying to explain that apparent paradox. I, I think, you know, Republicans have the idea that the economy is going to take care of everything for us, you know, or at least they say they do. You know, they talk about the quote unquote free market and its invisible hand, which is, you know, in my view, it's that's a kind of form of submission. You know, the invisible hand is kind of your nanny. Um, it's but it, it, and, and the Democrats, if they have a weakness, a parallel weakness or people on the left in the U.S., it's the idea that the institutions are basically OK. I mean, you and I have been talking about how they're not. And I realize that, like, a lot of people are having a lot of smart, smart conversations about that. But but interestingly, in the polling, you know, if you it's it, Republicans are, if I'm following correctly, are twice as likely as Democrats to think that somebody's going to rig the election the next time around. And that's weird, you know, because Democrats have every reason to think that somebody might because somebody just tried, you know, and we all stood there and watched while it happened. And it wasn't exactly done in in, in secret. But 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 Republicans, if you just follow that this you know, very primitive measure, seem to be, you know, they're t- twice as likely to be suspicious of the system. I think it's hard for Democrats to get over their own basic trust in American institutions. And and the, the, the paradox is that Democrats tend to trust the institutions that Republicans are gaming. And I think that's, you know, that's in a deep, tragic way, that's our problem. That Democrats tend to trust the very institutions that Republicans are are gaming, or they look or and here's a second, a second kind of critique, you know, of one's own side, they don't look at the institutions which are power critical, and Republicans do. And so by that, I mean, the states, Um, the Democrats have have, didn't really look hard, you know, our Constitution, going back to the main thing, this conversation is set up in such a way that the states, the states have, um, the states have authority over over even federal elections. And that means that who's in a state legislature and who's a state attorney general and so on turns out to be extremely important. And the Democrats haven't been that good at that kind of deep level tactics, whereas the Republicans have been excellent at it, you know, let's face it, for the last almost half century now. And so we, we, we tend to look away from that. And what we tend to, Democrats tend to look towards is, um, I think what Democrats like to look at is who's the president. You know, is our is our person the president? Is there is there a Clinton? Is there an Obama? You know, is there a Biden? Then probably everything's basically okay. And I think that's just kind of the way. I mean, you know, other people I'm sure have pulled all this and know better than me. But but that's the impression I get that Republicans are down in the weeds with the tactics. They kind of think the economy is going to take care of stuff for you, so they don't care about policy. The Democrats are not so much into the tactics. They're into the humans that lead. They're into the they're into their a little bit too into, of course, you know, they're, they're the clans who lead us and, um, and the federal level and, uh, and, 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 and not interested enough in midterms, you know, in midterms are when state legislatures are going to be elected. And of course, it's when Congress and a third of the Senate is going to be chosen. So I think there's, there is this kind of, there's this kind of unfortunate, perfect storm brewing where the argument that one has to make about 2022 is that, hey, look, you should you got to vote as though the life of the republic depends on it because if we don't if we don't win in 2022 then there's this complicated institutional way in which the republic the republic will break down 
right? But de Democrats aren't really into complicated institutional ways. You know, they're into social movements and leaders and, you know, policy and stuff like that. And so I, I think, I, 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 yeah, I mean, obviously you're right. Apathy, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. You know, apathy, you know, exhaustion with COVID, disappointment with Biden, who I think has been, by the way, largely unfairly covered. I mean, I think, I think, I think the administration did an extraordinary amount in a very, in a very short time, but yeah, apathy is a problem. But another problem is just kind of the way that the, 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 the Democrats look at reality and, 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 and the, and the, and the, the and so we're in this odd situation where some people like me are spending a lot of energy trying to explain the, the, the geometry of this threat you know, but it's not catching a lot of, I don't think it's, I don't, I think, I think we're all struggling to find a way to make people realize that if you lose in 2022, you're back in Trump land, you know, with or without Trump and maybe forever, you know, that that could, that could be it. That's, that's, that's true, but I, it's, it's hard to find a way to communicate it to people. Well, Professor Snyder, I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, we went through a lot of material, a lot to, to think about and, and uh, a lot in my profession as journalists to, to do in in sort of explaining what's going on. So thank you very much for, for your time, and uh, I, I wish you all the best. Before we wrap up the podcast, I just wanted to make a note of something very significant that's happening at the United States Capitol this week. Washington's been honoring the life of the late Senator Harry Reid. In Las Vegas last weekend, Barack Obama eulogized him, and Carol King and Brandon Flowers serenaded him. At the Capitol this week, Reed lay in state in the building housing the institution that he helped shape, the United States Senate. As majority leader, Reed helped push through some of the most consequential changes in history, among them the Affordable Care Act. He retired in 2016, but he continued to weigh in on the most important issues, like elections, especially in his home state of Nevada, and one that still resonates, the Senate filibuster that allows 40 senators to stop most all legislation cold without much effort at all. As majority leader, Reid was stymied by GOP opposition to Obama's judicial picks so much that he convinced his caucus to get rid of the filibuster for such nominees. His critics saw this as the eventual erosion of the filibuster altogether. We shall see. We do know that in 2019, he advocated going all the way. He used a New York Times op-ed to call for getting rid of the filibuster for all legislation and allowing majorities in the Senate and the public that they reflect to decide the issues of the day. Reed was a creature of the Senate. Perhaps it's appropriate that his remains return to the Capitol at this time for one last round for the former boxer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>